Hey guys, Cade here, host of the Primitive Podcast. On today's episode, uh, we have Dave Marcinkowski. Dave's the CEO and one of the partners of Madeira Residential. And they're apartment developers. They, they buy and uh, flip apartments. Been doing it a long time. Highly, highly successful. I've built a great company, almost 400 employees. And one of the cool things about Dave and his partners is they've done it together. You hear a lot of horror stories about business partnerships. But I think you'll, you'll hear in this podcast, in this episode, uh, that Dave and them have done, done it really well. And it's really benefited their company. And so um, I think you'll, you'll learn a lot from them in that and you'll really enjoy this episode. Really appreciate you being here, Dave. Uh, It's been fun over the last several years getting to know you. I think we've worked together since December of 2017, so we've had the privilege of getting to know you that long. Of course, uh, you know, my nephew Rylan and your son Ben are good friends, and, mm-hmm. and so we've known known each other through that for a long time. And so uh, it's really great for me to have you on our podcast and can't wait uh, to learn from you, you know, this morning. So for those who don't know who Dave Marcinkowski is, uh, say Marcinkowski fast 10 times, I dare you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, tell us where you're from, tell us a little bit about your family, and uh, I'd love for you to share with people who Madeira is and, you know, how you guys started and what you do and all that good stuff. Yeah. Well, there's not a lot of Marcinkowskis in Lubbock. Not um, a lot. <laughs> no. So uh, that kind of gives away where I came from. So I was born just north of Detroit, Michigan. I lived there for 26 years. Okay. So I went to college in Michigan, small Division three school in Michigan. I got to play basketball at. Um, got into the industry kind of uh, happenstance. Um, my, my master plan out of college would be a professional caddy. Um, for circumstances that would <laughs> take on, too hold long. Hold on, hold on, You wanted to be as a professional caddy? Yeah. You would have unequivocally been the largest uh, caddy in the game. No, there's Think big caddies that. out there. Yeah, <laughs> I actually, I started caddying when I was 11 years old at a country club called Oakland Hills Country Club, and they've hosted U.S. Open, that PGA Championships, Ryder, Ryder Cup uh, about 15 years ago. Oh, and, my gosh. And so cool. I got to caddy. I got to caddy for some pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's like the place in the Detroit area is Oakland Hills. And so and I've caddied in like some championships. And That's really things. cool. This uh, is fun. I didn't know this about you. Yeah. And so my plan was, you know, it's probably why I, I kind of screwed around in college a lot um, was <laughs> to be a professional caddy. I actually had a bag on the floor to tour and uh, a buddy of mine and I were going to go get an apartment and we were going to go caddy for I think the Florida tour turned into like the Nike tour, which turned okay. into whatever it is called now but uh my buddy like a week before called me and said man my parents give me so much hard hard time about this caddy <laughs> thing and i got this college education he's like i'm gonna bail on you and so i chickened out and needed a job really quick um and so i went to work for a temp agency and got put at an apartment management company family-owned deal okay. called ed rose and sons in detroit as a bookkeeper and uh that's where i got in the industry that i am in right now i never left it awesome okay and so i did that for three or four years it was a family-run company and i was not in the family so i had a ceiling that i'd hit uh there and i uh i I actually got um again too long for a, a podcast of this length but i ended up basically taking a job in chicago for a guy that um uh became my mentor a company called marquette management and i moved to chicago and like Four days. Wow. So I interviewed with him, and, and he offered me the job on a Thursday, and I moved there that weekend. 
and uh, started that Monday as, awesome. as their director of training. And so I spent uh, the first probably five or six years with them really training everybody from leasing agents to maintenance to mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I can't, I'm not a handyman, but I would train people on systems and things like that, okay. uh, managers. And then I kind of progressed to where I, I started to, I, I ran their leadership team my last three years. Um, same kind of deal though. I wasn't a, you know, well, I take that back. The reason I came down to Lubbock is, is my wife is from Lubbock. Okay. And so Laura and I met at a wedding in Fort Worth. She, okay. Her coworker she was teaching at the time married my uh, sweet maiden college. Okay. And so we, uh, we dated long distance for a while and then we got, Married, and she came up to Lubbock. I mean, it's up to uh, Chicago to go to pharmacy school. And when she got done with pharmacy school, she wanted to move back to Texas. And uh, we were blessed to make our way back to Lubbock. It was the last place we thought we'd end up. So, what what was that like? Like, she shows up and says, uh, "You're coming with me to, to Lubbock, Texas." Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the very the, the day after I had met her, I, uh, I I did the kiss of death. I told her I would never move to Texas. <laughs> and so it was it was just it was inevitable for me. And you know, God was laughing, and you're going to That's Texas. Great. So. Um, yeah, so, we, you know, we, I was totally cool. I didn't have any, my brother lived in Chicago. I didn't have any ties to Chicago, so I was totally cool. Moving to Texas, and we would come down for the holidays. And um, Laura's family is close friends with the Stells, Paul Stell. Okay. And so Paul and I uh, started, ta- we met like a Christmas, we had met before, but we started talking at a Christmas deal. And his company, Stella, I mean, uh, Stell and Young, which his partner was Charlie Young at the time, was was growing and they needed some operational help. And so I came down here as a third partner with them. Okay. And the three of us were together for uh, a couple of years. Paul was really into building Vintage Township on the south side of town, which is an amazing development. Um, but Charlie and I are apartment guys. We're not home builders. Right. And so um, Paul was feeling a pull that way, and we were wanted to stay on the apartment side. And um, blessed, and, and Paul was, was very kind to let allow the two of us to buy him out. Uh, and we Charlie and I started uh, what's now called well, – Charlie and I and then – there was somebody else who was working for Paul named Gary Hall at the time. The three of us got together and formed Madera okay, Residential. That's awesome. And so when was this? This was nine or two thousand and seven ish. Okay. All right. That's awesome. Okay. So so tell people what what Madera is. What yeah. what you do. And so how we're it works we're in apartments. About the work. Um, we uh, we we currently own about thirteen thousand apartment units. Probably about fifty or so properties. We manage we manage for other people probably another thousand units. So we're about fourteen thousand units. Wow. Uh, we bought our first deal together in 2008, and perfect uh, timing. Yeah, it was wonderful. We got the. <laughs> it was in Baytown, Texas. We had Hurricane Ike hit. In that was in July of 08. We had Hurricane Ike hit in September of 08, and then we had the financial crisis in October of 08. Wow. T- 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 tell me about that. I mean, like uh, that that that's a lot to endure. You know, yeah. you're, you're starting this new business, and you certainly know the industry, but yeah. the the business itself is new. You have new partners. You guys are all getting into this. You purchase your first property and you get hit by a hurricane and the financial crisis of 08. What's going through your mind? You're like, what, well, what did in, we do? I mean, it was in Baytown, Texas, which quite frankly was like the twilight zone. Um, you know, we we were we were, we weren't cocky, but we we really thought we knew how to manage apartments. We thought we could do anything, and and we were thrown things we had never ex- considered before. Um, and it was one of those deals where we had to pull ourselves up from the bootstraps and focus on that deal. I've been. We've been told that we were like that property was one of two deals that didn't go back to the bank that was bought in the summer of 2008 in the Houston wow. area. Wow! Um, but we we endured. We had some amazing um, part, limited partners um, that uh, were very patient with us, mm. who were who understood the times and understood the situation to allow us to kind of fight through it. I mean, everything and anything. It was Murphy's law. I mean, it was absolute Murphy's law. Anything that could go wrong went wrong. Mm. 
um, for a couple of years. And we had to fight through that. And we learned a lot about each other as partners. Yeah. We learned a lot about our organization and how to properly run things. Like we thought we had it figured out. But at the end of the day, you know, those challenges allowed us to really kind of um, hone our skills. Mm. And uh, not that we're perfect by any stretch of the imagination, sure. but it required something different of us that we didn't realize until we got into it. The great news is, is we came out of that deal um, and bought our second deal with those same investors in April of 2010, and we've been kind of off to the races ever since. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and, and that deal, like, so everybody, where does Madeira come from? That deal, um, it was called Baker Downs. Um, it had two small ponds on it and a bunch of trees. And so um, we named it Lakes of Madeira, um, which Madeira is Spanish for wood. Mm. And uh, that's where Madeira came from. It was the first deal we ever bought together. That's awesome. That's yeah. really cool. I'm, I'm going to come jump ahead on my questions here. Yeah. But when you when you think about failure, you know, as you've done, as you built this company over over the years, and we think of that experience specifically, you know, where you just, you know, it wasn't so much a failure as much as it was a significant challenge. But how, how have you guys approached failure? How do you approach failure as a leader? What it, you know, whether whether it's you know tw- in two thousand eight, you know, in terms of what you learned from that and how that you know you apply that to your leadership now, or maybe at some other you know level of fa- failure or experience of failure. How do you approach it? That deal in particular, because we were still managing for other people and we had challenges. We we're managing for other people, and, and that's always a challenge because they have different expectations and um, that you have to kind of adapt your systems to. Um, But like that particular deal for those two years, um, it was totally reactionary. I mean, looking back, it was awful. Mm. I mean, you know, enduring it was awful. Now I look back and said it was the absolute best thing that could have happened to us at the perfect time. Mm. Um, It really galvanized us as partners. It galvanized us as an organization. Um, It's easy to sit there and look at challenges now that we've fought through that battle and kind of... their failure is now an opportunity, right? You know, where I think if you kind of just go by the, the buzzwords of failure is an opportunity and you don't actually experience it, you don't really understand what that means. Yeah, that's and great. we understand right. what that means. Yeah, that's amazing. So uh, there are four main partners at Madeira. Yep. Okay. So what what is the kind of leadership structure look like? And how, how do you view your leadership? Like what, is, what do you feel like your responsibility at Madeira is for your almost 400 employees? Yeah. Um, so the four of us have completely different disciplines. Uh, my partner, Gary Hall, has got a construction background. And so uh, we do value-add apartments. We do a lot of, of renovation work. And Gary oversees that side of things. Um, Charlie uh, has a lot of operational skills. Uh, he's very gifted in that area. Uh, but he's very good at assessing markets and apartments as well as relationships. And so he helps uh, raise equity with limited partners, but he really helps identify deals and cast vision for how we're going to create value on those deals to make them successful. Alton has got a financial background, Alton Smith, um, and he really is the guy behind the curtain who makes all these deals happen. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. There's so many moving parts in those things, and Alton has uh, got a team that, that really has that figured out. And he helps, helps as well in fundraising. I mean, we, we do cross uh, each other on a lot of levels, but we also understand and respect each other's disciplines. That's really cool. And so my deal, I'm the day-to-day operations guy. And so I handle, you know, you know, everything from that standpoint. Charlie helps a lot with that, especially as far as performance goes and things like that. But, but you know, the, the folks that work with, you know, I've worked with the leadership team that really helps run the properties. So how do you view your responsibility? You know, when you, when you think of your leadership team, when you think of your almost 400 employees, 
you know, when, when you show up to work, what, what responsibility do you feel like in terms of the value you need to bring them and how you need to lead them? I mean, how do you, how do you approach your, your role as, as the leader? Yeah, I think from, you know, when we were just the one property, even like the first, let's say 15 or 20 properties, um, I was on property every week. Um, you know, especially like some Madeira. I mean, I was down there, you know, I think I was down there four days after Charlie was down there during the hurricane. I was down there like four days after the hurricane and camped out. We had an apartment and we were there every single day. And so decision-making was, you know, we made the decisions, you know, we had managers and staff that worked for us, but we were totally engulfed into it. The, the challenges we've scaled up has been letting go of that and hiring and developing the team to allow you to do that kind of scaling. And so that's the area that I've probably focused on the most is, you know, casting vision, um, hiring uh, other leaders that can then hire teams. Uh, I'm a big fan of, you know, anything that you take on, you need to have a champion for, and that champion can't just be you. Uh, you need, if you're a leader, you need to be the one casting the vision for that, and you need to have somebody who can live and eat, eat and breathe that vision and make it a reality. Mm-hmm. And so I spend the majority of my time now with the leadership team, which has been challenging because, um, you know, our on-site staff became used to seeing me, and they don't anymore. Right. They'll see me at Christmas parties, and they'll see me at some different things. Um, I try to do, you know, emails and various ways to be able to connect with a group, but the individual handshakes and, and you know, knowing what everything was going on in people's lives just doesn't exist anymore. Mm. It was hard for me. I think it's been hard for us as an organization, but uh, the reality of it is, is like, that's, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. And we love what we do. Uh, we have a very clear vision of 10 times who we are. Uh, and when you can, when you can look at that, and it's not just to grow to grow, it, it, we really feel like we're doing something that's impactful. We feel like we're helping people out. It's easy to get passionate about that. Mm. And so, you know, that's, you know, I, I, I read something recently I talked about, you know, it's, it's casting vision. Leadership is at the partner level is casting vision. It's hiring other leaders and developing those leaders. And it's making sure there's money to do the projects you're wanting to do. Yeah, that's really good. And I think that's probably where I spend 80%, 90% of my time. Yeah, that's great. So practically speaking, when you talk about vision, and practically speaking, when you talk about leading and empowering the leaders that you're leading, what does that look like? You know, how, how much time do you spend casting vision? In what ways do you cast vision? You know, how much time do you share with your, your leaders? And what is like leading the leaders look like, you know, practically speaking for you? Yeah, I mean, it really is um, getting out of getting away from your desk. Mm-hmm. Um, it is easy for me or anybody to sit down and get stuck returning emails and sitting on phone calls and getting demos or having a vendor call me up. And I go to extraordinary lengths, right, wrong, or indifferent, to avoid all of that. Uh, I, I try to be email zero every day. Um, I don't usually get there, but I get pretty darn close. Mm-hmm. And what I'll do is I'll do that first thing in the morning, and then I don't look at it again. I mean, I mean if I go to lunch and I'm having something to eat, I may look at it, but nothing, I, I don't let that control me. And when you get away from your desk and you start to walk around and you interact with your leaders, um, you know, I think that is the, if you don't do anything else, that is the most important thing is to have that kind of relationship with them where you can listen to the challenges that they're facing. Um, you can step away and, and, and then come back to them and said, Hey, have you thought about this? Have you considered this? What if we do this? Uh, at the same time, you're helping to inspire them and reinforce that vision of where we're trying to go. I can't tell you how many meetings I go into in which you know, I feel going into it, everybody's on the same page, everybody gets where we're going, and I couldn't be more wrong. 
And, you know, there is, I've had to get better at one, listening, but then two, being able to bring people back to center and say, let's remember why we're doing this. Let's remember where we're going. And, you know, usually, you know, if you do that and you do that consistently, people start to buy into it. I think that's where culture Mm -hmm. comes from. Mm, that's really good. Thanks for sharing that insight. Um, how do you approach your own personal growth? You have all these responsibilities. Yeah. You're leading leaders. You have employees. You have stakeholders and investors. You have partners that you're answering to and working with. You you have properties. You know, practically speaking. So, how does Dave focus on Dave, and and what does yeah. that that look like? Um, I, I think there's a few different ways that I do that. Um, in the most simplistic form, um, I like to read. Uh, I'm not like I'll listen to Blinkist uh, books. And if I like a book, I may try to listen to it, especially if I've got a long drive. If you know what Blinkist is, I mean, it's basically a 30-minute you know, cliff note version of a book being read to you. So you can go through a lot of books very Never heard fast. Of um, and then I like uh, Flipboard. And so I will, I've got my Flipboard kind of set up to where uh, it knows all the things that I like. And so I get inundated every day with articles I can just flip through. And if I find one I like, I read it. Um, also for me, it's about, I mean, you, and you have to invest in that. And so there's some communities that I'm a part of that I go to extraordinary lengths to make sure that I stay connected with. Um, one's Abundance 360, a Peter Diamandis group that Charlie got me connected with that uh, is a very technology forward driven, driven group that uh, has really inspired me to really ask a lot of cool questions and really challenge the status quo. Uh, and the third thing for me is, is volunteer work. So I... Um, learned very early on, and uh, I love volunteer work. And my passion is probably more on associations. So I've been president of the Texas Department Association. I'm president of Lubbock. I'm actively involved at the national level. Uh, I'm dialing that back now. I'm getting more involved in our local chamber. Um, but I find that, if it, one, it helps me stay informed with what's going on in our industry or what's going on in the business world. But more importantly, it allows me to network with other leaders. And that's the one thing that was missing in a lot of in a lot of spaces. You, know, you just can't sit down and read, and think you're going to be able to really learn what you know what challenges are out there. You need to hear from other people who are going through similar experiences or experience. Maybe you haven't experienced yet, but very well could. And to know that I can pick up a phone and I've now probably got a, a rolodex of fellow volunteers of you know hundreds that I can call upon. And and it's interesting in those in that environment with the volunteer side, um, you know especially in the apartment industry, um, we are competitors and sometimes fierce competitors. Uh, But the folks that I'm friends with, which is, and I haven't really met very many people who don't fall into this, into this box. um, We all believe one thing, which is, is if I've got a property and I would rather have a person next to me who is actively involved and has the same views and values as I do, and we can all succeed when that happens versus this just, you know, it's me against you kind of thing. Yeah, doggy dog. Yeah, Yeah, and I mean, I go on trips with competitors. Uh, I've got really good friends that we're fighting for the same deal who, you know, I'll get some pretty random fun hate texts yeah. uh, throughout the throughout the, the time when we get something that they didn't get or we're doing something. But at the same time, if we do something operationally or I see something operationally, I know I can call them or they can call me and it's like, 
hey, I'll open up the vault for you. Right, you know, this isn't, this isn't, you know, the, the secret sauce isn't what people really think it is. Yeah, that's awesome. How do you, how do you balance, you know, work and, you know, growing this company and, and, you know, all the aspirations you have with your family? Yeah. I mean, what is, what does that look like? And, and when you find yourself out of balance, I'm really curious what you do specifically to kind of help yourself come back to the middle. Yeah. I mean, I used to travel a lot because I think I thought I had to travel. I thought I had to be on site. Um, and I had to go through a, I had to go through kind of a hard time accepting the fact that that uh, and learn a lot about myself. That wasn't me. You know, I, I now take, you know, the one thing that our most valuable asset is our time. And I take that very seriously. And uh, I, I say no a lot. Um, I used to not say no at all. I used to be very uh, um, codependent upon, you know, you know, vendors. I mean, the vendor community in our industry must think that I'm the biggest goofball ever because I used to be yes, yes, yes. And now I'm like, absolutely not. And <laughs> I, I delete emails from them as fast as they come in. I never return voicemails. Um, and it's, and it's, it's interesting. You know, even my, our folks that work for us, I get a lot of emails from our folks. And, you know, I, I tell our people, don't send me a thank you email. I don't want to think. I mean, I have to open that email up. I have to look at it. I have to consider for a second, do I need to reply to it? I may even feel guilty because I've got it. I know I'm not going to reply to it. So just don't bother sending me a thank you email. Um, and so I use a, I use a product called Unroll.me um, uh, that allows me to basically push uh, emails that I get that, I, that are, are probably more junk mail uh, or somewhere between junk mail and relevant uh, into a, a single email that I can get a day. Um, if I ever want to go back, but it's basically an archive tool that I just, I mean, I, I, like I told you, I, I try to stay email zero. I, I, you know, we, you know, this is terrible to say, especially on a podcast, but good luck trying to find me in our phone system. You know, you're just not going to find me. And, and, and I, and, and that's not an arrogant thing. That's a reality. If you want to have a balance in your home life, you have to learn how to say yes and how to say no. Mm. And uh, I was, I've been blessed with enough opportunities on both sides to learn the lesson and take that very seriously. Well, that's really good. Thanks for sharing that. It's good, good insight. We're getting all kinds of great tools. We'll have to make sure to add a lot of those in the show notes so people can easily find them. I, I'm going to check out Blinkist. That, that's new to me. Blinklist. I think it's Blinklist. Blinklist. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's great. Uh, a couple more questions for you. What, what have been the biggest personal influences in your own leadership journey, whether it's an author or whether it's an individual, whether it's a mentor, maybe it's a combo of those things. Just curious at, you know, who, who that has been or what that's been and what, what are some of the big takeaways that, that you've learned? Well, I've got great partners who I respect deeply and they definitely um, inspire me every day with what we're doing. Um, I have uh, uh, a tendency to be the one who thinks like way out there. And it's easy to have partners who are like, what is wrong with you? We don't have time for that. We don't have the money for that. We don't have this or that. Uh, and my partners have uh, um, allowed me the freedom to kind of be me, which is, which is critical. I've also been extremely blessed with um, great mentors. Yeah. I mean, even from the time that I was in high school, I can remember people who are a part of my life that help guide me into who I think I am today. I've got an amazing family, an amazing wife. Um, the same kind of deal. I mean, I, I had to figure out who I was, but I also needed to have the environment to be able to, to be me. And I, and I think those relationships are what, what kind of drives that for That's me. That's great. You've mentioned, you know, partners a lot, you know, because you have three of them. And so you run this big company with, you know, three partners. What does partnership look like for you guys? I mean, you know, you hear a lot of horror stories of, yeah. of business partnerships. 
And it doesn't seem like that's been the case for you. And certainly, I'm sure I'm, I'm certain there have been challenges. But what have you learned about partnership, and how have you guys really made it thrive and, and really work when when a lot of stories you hear are kind of horror stories? Yeah, I think the most important thing is is like I think each of us has to understand what it is we want to do, what we're willing to do, and what we're not willing to do. And as long as that fits together, and as long as we each understand that. Um, the relationship can thrive, and then it becomes collaborative, and then it becomes fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bring up our th- my three partners because they're easy ones to do, or my wife is an amazing partner. Um, but we, we we really value relationships in Madeira, and so we have a lot of collaborative partnerships. Um, we, you know, a lot of people probably take stock in, you know, um, well, I, I know a lot of friends of mine who kind of like treat their organizations like a little black box that they have to protect at all costs. We've been open books since day one, and uh, we'll tell vendors. We'll tell you know if there's if there's a if we believe there's a reason for us to consider having a collaborative partnership, we will be an open book with with mm-hmm. folks. And I think that's critical as it relates to a relationship at, at, at a partnership level. Mm-hmm. And that's what I see with my partners. It's when you sit there and you have silos and you draw lines in sand, or you aren't willing to say, this is what I'm willing to do and this is what I like to do. Mm. And you sort of sell that out for what maybe somebody else wants to. I can tell you there's always space to be able to find common ground, but you have to have a relationship with somebody where you can sit down and be like, dude, I don't want to do that. Here's yeah. why. And you know, and at the end of the day, what could happen is, is like, you know, if that's your deal and, and, and I can see the vision for where you're trying to go, you, know, you don't need me. I mean, each of us needs each other because we're great together, but at the same time, um, they don't need to call me up and go, Hey Dave, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Um, there's such a level of trust between us and it wasn't always that way. It's earned most, that's, that's, right. that's always earned. It's right. something you grow into, something you grow yeah. into. But at the point now, it's one of those deals where I can make a decision and, and I will 99.9% of the time then go back to my partners and say, Hey, this is what I decided. This is why. And they may or may not agree with me every time, but it's one in which it's a respectful conversation when they don't. At the same time, I don't have to sit there and stop and go, man, I got to get everybody together. I got to call a timeout. Um, business world today with technology is going so incredibly fast. If you are not nimble, if you do not have those kind of relationships, you will get destroyed. Yeah, um, that's so why true. I think the I think the garage groups that are out there that are coming up with ideas that are nobody knows about are gonna take could honestly take out a, a monster. Because, you know, I see it as we grow. The, the, the more you grow, the more you scale, the more that becomes a challenge. It can, be, it can be managed, it can be dealt with, and we are getting really good at that. But, I mean, we get exposed to some bigger companies, especially in our industry. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like they're dinosaurs and you mm. can see it. Yeah. Yeah, I've lost all the ability to move, you know, nimble like you're talking about. Yeah. Well, they don't, even, they don't even see that as a value. Right. Which is, yeah. You know, we've got it right. Which and we're going to keep is, doing it this it way right for dis- Major disruption. Major disruption. Yeah, yeah. It's good. All right, last question for you. Um, if you could, you know, if you could uh, go back to when you're 25, 30 years old, you know, what would the Dave now, all the things you've learned, all the insight you've gained, you know, all the, all the successes and the failures, what would you tell your kind of 30-year-old self? What advice would you give, give you the 30-year-old Dave Marcinkowski? You know, it's... I'm going to answer that in two parts. The first part I'm going to say is I, I think about that every once in a while. You have a hard time. I try to focus as much time as I can on where we're going, not where I've been. But it's critical to remember where you've been. Um, you know, there it would be easy for me to go back and look at all these different points in my life and say, man, I wish I didn't do that. I wish I could tell myself that was a bad choice. But then I sit back and I go, you know what? 
then I wouldn't be who I am today. Right. And so, you know, in a general sense, um, I don't have any regrets. Uh, and I've, you know, I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I've had some horror stories along the way. But I look at my past as who I am. And so, um, you know, there isn't this sort of mindset of I need to go back and tell myself not to do this or whatnot. I think the thing for me that I would um, encourage myself because where I've hit tumbling blocks is, like everybody, um, self-doubt. You know, um, you know, there have been plenty of times in my life where I knew the right answer, but I was able to talk myself out of it because of something. Um, usually something related to another person relationship where I was afraid I was going to hurt somebody or I was going to say the wrong thing or I was going to do the, those kinds of things. I, I would encourage myself to go with my gut every single time and because I know deep down I mean well and I care about the person, whoever that is, or the, the event. And if it's wrong, we'll fix it. There's nothing you can't – I tell people that, that I train all the time, there's nothing you can do that I can't fix or we can't fix together. Right. And you gotta believe that. And if you do that, I think it gives you a lot of courage to be able to step out and take risks, which again, I think more so than ever, we have to be able to do. Yeah, that's really great. Thanks for sharing all that. Well, again, we, we really appreciate you being with us today. I, I think uh, everyone's gonna really enjoy this episode and, cool. and really appreciate your time. Thanks, buddy.